You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. And uh, I love I love being a pastor of you guys. I love you guys very much. I pray for you often. It is a delight. It really is a joy to. Most of the time, you see me down there leading worship. So, and then once in a while, I get to get up here and talk. And it is just a joy to be a pastor at Fellowship Bible Church. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers for Jared and I. And uh, we are excited about the future of our church and what God is doing. But more importantly, uh, someone I love more than y'all is Jesus. All right? Let's get this straight. I am infatuated with Jesus. I really am. I can't get enough of Jesus. I want to know everything that can be known about him. He is so, so beautiful to me. And in fact, throughout the course of the history of the world, no one has ever been more loved or even more hated than Jesus. No one has had more influence. No one has had more impact in the world than Jesus has. Jesus is the most famous person in all of history. There have been more songs sung to him and about him. There have been more paintings painted of him than anything else. There have been more books written about him than any other person ever in history. No army, no government, no kingdom has ever had the amount of impact and change that Jesus has. And Jesus, guys, is immensely popular. Okay? He's popular in pop culture. I mean, he frequently, images of him frequently appear on TV shows like South Park and The Simpsons. Dog the Bounty Hunter prays to him every time before he goes and tracks his criminals down. And at the end of Duck Dynasty, what do we see? They're praying through, Je- through the name of Jesus, Phil says. He is immensely popular. There have been roughly over a hundred films that have been made about Jesus. In the world of fashion, Jesus appears on numerous articles of clothing that we have seen famous people wear. There's that infamous Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. We see people like Madonna. We've seen Madonna wear it. We've seen Ashton Kutcher, uh, Ben Affleck wear it. We've seen uh, Brad Pitt, Pamela Anderson, all of them wearing T-shirts with some depiction of Jesus on it. Musically, everyone from the rapper Kanye West to rockers like, uh, let's see, Green Day and YouTube, the ki- U2, the Killers, country superstars, Randy Travis, Carrie Underwood, they all sing songs that reference to Jesus. John Lennon, in response to the Beatles' popularity, even once said, we are more popular than Jesus now. In sports, every time someone scores a touchdown, throws a no-hitter, hits the game-winning shot, knocks somebody out in UFC, they all give thanks to who? My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, in the middle of Jesus' popularity, in the middle of how famous he is, no one has ever been misunderstood or even falsified than Jesus. 
And we can even see that in the art. And I want to have some fun with you guys this morning. Is that okay? Can we have a little fun? So just to look at some of the different images and ideas of who Jesus is, i got a couple pictures I want us to take a look at that someone either drew or painted of what people think Jesus may uh, look like. So here's G.I. Joe Jesus. All right? Look at that square jaw and that immensely groomed beard. His flowing hair, I bet you if he didn't have that little robe on, he would be ripped. I mean, this is a Jesus that says, I want to be your friend, brother. You know what I mean? I, I can't beat that Jesus up. I'm scared of him. Go to the next one. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is bless my heart, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, look at those blue eyes. What, are, what Arabian ever has blue eyes, for one thing? <laughs> Middle Easterner or whatever. Long, flowy, beautiful hair. I, thanks, Ryan. I, mean, I just do things to have fun. To re- I hope you're not offended by any of those. Uh, if you are, please be more offended with the artist who drew those. <laughs> Seriously, what I did there, and y'all going to like this word, I just did a reductic, reductical ad absurdium. Mississippi boy just said that. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> I just teased up some false idea about something to show the ridiculousness of it to prove a point that we're going to make over these next 12 to 15 weeks. You know, we are kicking off this new series, The Real Jesus, and our goal is to uh, take a look at, at Scripture, to, let, to specifically parts of Matthew 4 and all of Matthew chapter 5, and we want to discover who this is that we are saying we're going to follow, who this is that we say that we love. You know, why do we want to do this? Because we believe the real Jesus wants to be real with you. He wants to be real with you. You know, many people like Jesus. Many people admire Jesus. Many people even want to be close to, excuse me, to Jesus. But when they look at themselves, when they take a look at who they are, we say things like, we're not good enough for Jesus. We say things like, my past is so jacked up for Jesus. Or I'm, I'm too far gone to change. Jesus isn't for me. And I just want to tell you, the real Jesus came for you, if that's you this morning. He is attracted to you. He loves the broken. He loves the people who are hurting by their past. He loves the downcast and the desperate. And when we are honest and we're broken and we're real before Jesus, that's when Jesus has become real to us. So let's do this together over the next 12 to 15 weeks, guys. Let's put aside all preconceived ideas about Jesus. Let's assume we don't know anything about him. Let's assume we don't know how, have any information about him. Better yet, let's assume we don't know anything about him. Let's rethink everything about Jesus. And let's together discover someone who has such great love that believers can hardly believe it. Alright, is that cool? Can we do that over the next few weeks? Alright, let's go to Matthew chapter 4. If you have an ESV Bible, it's on page 809. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some black hardback ESV Bibles out there on the welcome table. We encourage you to take one. It's our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. It is life-changing. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. 
It says, when he heard that uh, Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And here's our focus. This is where we're going to spend the rest of the morning. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If there's one main point I want us to take away this morning, there's one thing I want you to remember, it's just simply this. When we are honest and real with Jesus, Jesus is real with us. Okay? Now, we're going to answer two questions this morning around verse 17. We want to answer the question, What did Jesus mean when He said to repent? And the second question we want to ask is, what in the world does he mean before the kingdom of heaven is at hand? So what did Jesus mean by repent? I think it's important that we spend some time here. Um, That was a message of the Old Testament prophets. Constantly preach, repent and turn to God, repent and turn to God. John the Baptist, just one chapter earlier in Matthew 3, said the same exact words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John, uh, Jesus repeats this. We see it repeated in Mark chapter 1. We also see jo- uh, Jesus sending out the disciples in March, uh, Mark 6, preaching the message of repentance. And then in all honesty, and it's because of Jared and I's fault and other pastors around that we, we've been influenced by, that we have a huge misunderstanding of what repentance is. Or it can be so easily misunderstood. You know, I told you last week that, um, you know, I've been raised within the, within, the, within the settings of a church nine months before I was born. And it wasn't until 2004, 2005 that I really began to see and understand what repentance is and what it looks like. And it was life-changing for me. I know several of you guys have asked me, and I've been asked over the years, like, what was a monumental point in my walk with Jesus, and it was here. It was here. This was a landmark in my life and in my walk and in my love for Jesus. You know, some common misunderstandings of what it means to repent are, you know, to be sorrowful, you know, to be sorry about something. It's even pray a prayer asking forgiveness or doing penance. In other words, uh, I'm sorry, so I've got to do things to show that I'm sorry. Those are common misunderstandings about what it really means to repent. And all those things are good, okay? Let me, let me just back up and say those things are good. It is good to be sorry for something. It is good to seek forgiveness. And it is good to show that you are sorry for something. However, the problem is, is that you can be very sorrowful over something. You can be asking forgiveness, and you can cry buckets and buckets of tears and never be truly repentant of it. Feeling sorrowful, asking forgiveness, 
crying buckets of tears or doing things to show you're sorry are just momentary acts that aren't lasting. They don't change you. And those acts simply just make us feel good for the moment. They kind of let us off the hook. Okay, I did this, so now I'm going to do these things and pay it back. We've kind of settled up. You know, we can now move on to something else until we do something wrong again, and then we have to pay for it, and the cycle starts all over again. This kind of view of repentance does not help us at all. It leaves us uh, still feeling guilty and shameful and embarrassed. It's very shallow. We still carry the weight of our sin, of what we've done. The burden of sin is not lifted from us. And it ultimately drives us in the ground in one of two ways. We either constantly are always feeling the guilt, so we're constantly trying to work and perform and prove that we are sorry, or it just drives us until we shut completely off and we just say, forget it. And there's an example of this in the Bible, too. Judas Iscariot. Okay, so he is one of the 12 original disciples and he's the one that betrays Jesus and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. After the deed is done and he sells Jesus out, he goes back to the temple and it says that he feels sorry and he throws the money back. And instead of repenting, he's carrying the weight of sin, the feeling guilty for what he's done. And what does he go do? He goes and hangs himself. That's what that kind of repentance. That's what this that kind of repentance leads to. It leads to constantly carrying the weight of sin, to where Judas's only escape, instead of turning to Jesus, was to just kill himself. And Jesus says in Mark fourteen that it was good, oh excuse me, that it would have been better for him to have never been born, because now he's suffering in hell for the rest of eternity for what he's done. Because he did not turn to Jesus. I don't want that kind of life personally. I don't believe you do either. I believe we want to experience freedom. I believe we want to not feel guilty. I believe we want to not carry shame or embarrassment over sin. So let's ask, what did Jesus really mean by repentance? Or to repent? And repentance is much bigger and more joy-filled than just a momentary act. It can be defined, this is how Ray Ortland defines repentance. He says that repentance is a Godward tilt at the center of your being because you now see that you have hated Him. And yet, He still loves you. And something deep inside you changes. And you want Him now. True repentance is a new heart within that touches everything about us. And we give Jesus free access to everything in our lives. We are open with Him. You know, to repent means to face up to who we are. Okay? It means to be open, to take a look at ourselves. And, and, and honestly, guys, there's something about us that, we, that we're trying to stuff down that we don't want to come up. There's something about us, either something we've done, or maybe even who we are that we have that we have 
that we, that we are trying to hide and we're trying to closet it and forget about it because uh, you can't bear to look at it. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's degrading. It's destroying. It's destructive in your life. It's paralyzing to you. It's defeating and frightening. And so you ignore it. You turn your mind, you turn your eyes away from it, and you think that by filling your mind and occupying your life and your mind with so much stuff that it'll just eventually go away. True repentance that Jesus wants for you and He wants for me will never become a reality if we're not being open and we're not being honest before God. So when you face yourself, when you face who you are, when you empty yourself before Jesus, when you share your life story, your history with Him, and your past and everything you've done, and you lay it before God, that's when Jesus becomes real to you. And for some of you today, this could be that day that you experience that. And I really pray and hope so. So going back to this definition, let's look at three, character, three things that repentance is going to consist of. You know, it, it, uh, he says that it's a Godward tilt at the center of your being because you now see that you have hated him. All right? So repentance is going to include a sense of your own sin. All right? You can't repent of something you don't know you've done. <laughs> so you've got to know your own sin. And we must see that our sin is not primarily against myself or against you and I horizontally, but primarily our sin is against God. He is hated, or excuse me, he is disgusted, and he absolutely, with a white hot fire, hates your sin. And the Bible is abundantly clear of that. And we must realize that our sin is ultimately against God, against Him. In Psalm 51, David is repenting of adultery and of murder. And he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And our sinful depths, guys, goes way deeper than we could ever imagine. Our heart is so sinful, we can't even begin to search the depths of the sin in our hearts. Jeremiah seventeen nine says that the heart is deceitfully wicked, or is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And guys, this is where true self-awareness begins to happen. All right, let me tell you something. You are an evil person. Every one of you, including me. We are evil people. Romans 3, there is none good but God. Or there's no one who does good. There is none who does good. There's no one who seeks God. We have all together turned aside and become worthless. That's what Romans 3 says. It says that out of our mouths comes, comes venom like out of snakes. Like snakes' venom comes spews forth from our mouth. Genesis chapter 6, I think it's verse 5. Jesus, God looks down upon man and he sees the wickedness of man and he says that every thought and intention of man's heart was on evil continually. We are some jacked up, wicked, evil people. 
Here's the reality. We are no different. Our hearts are no better or no different than the most vile, most wicked, most evil person you could think of. Whether it's the worst mass serial killer or a mass rapist or or anybody, our hearts are as evil and as wicked as theirs. Jesus would say there is none good but God. And if we want Jesus to become real to us, we must be willing to face our evil. We must be willing to look at our wicked hearts. And we must be willing to come, as the prodigal son did, to the father and say, Father, I have sinned and I'm no longer worthy. You know, the biggest barrier to, for Jesus to become real with us is that we're not being real with him. We're not stepping up and owning our sin. We don't, we're not admitting our need for him. We don't see our sin as a big problem. You know, and we spend much time and energy brushing over our sin, hiding it, suppressing it as if we're scared God's going to find out. You know, newsflash, he already knows. Hebrews 4 says we're laid naked before him. He knows the deepest, darkest, most wicked things in your heart. And Jesus, folks, wants to set you free from those. He wants to carry that wickedness for you. He doesn't want you to carry your sin. And it is by grace that God takes the light of the gospel and He takes Jesus and He shines it into the darkest parts of our heart, exposing us. That's His kindness to us. To let us see just how wicked we are. And when Jesus says repent, he's saying it's time to start owning up. It's time to stop trying to hide it. It's time to stop making excuses and it's time to come clean. And having a sense of sin, guys, will never change you. If you dwell on that and you, and you dwell on the fact that you are horribly wicked, you will never be changed. You will constantly carry the guilt of sin. Constantly carry it. You will suppress it. You will make excuses for it. And it will drive you in the ground. However, a sense of sin accompanied with knowing the mercy and love found in God through Jesus will set you free. It is knowing His unbelievable kindness towards us. His unbelievable mercy to us that leads us to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of God leads men to repentance. What we must know is that um, when we sin, what we're saying is that our ways are more important than God's, that we know what's best for our life, that uh, we, you know, we don't need God. We got this under control, and we're running from Him. We're dishonoring Him when we sin. We're hating Him when, we're sin, when we sin. Yet Jesus Christ stands before God, interceding for us, saying, and I still love them. And repentance is not, turning, is not primarily turning away from sin, 
but it's turning away from sin, and ultimately it's turning to God. Okay? Because if you just turn away from your sin and you dwell on that, you're just going to drive yourself in the ground. But when you turn from your sin and you turn to the mercy and the kindness and the love of Christ, that's what repentance is. That's when you find freedom. Because He is the only one who is loving you unconditionally. He knows everything about you. And yet He still looks at you with love. With eyes of affection and tenderness. And that is our motivation for repentance. And a repentant life, as Ray Orland said, is going to lead you to, you want Him now. You want more of that mercy. You want more of that kindness. You want more of Him being accepted and loved and forgiven by God changes us completely because He's made us a new creation and our desires are changing. Our desires for Him are growing. Our desires for His Word are growing. Our desires to be with His people are growing. So this is what Jesus meant when He said repent. Start owning up to your sin and come and find favor and love and mercy from me. He wants you to repent. He wants you to do this so that you can experience freedom and life that is only found when we are real with Jesus because when we are real with Jesus, that's when He becomes real to us. So, next question. What did Jesus mean by, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And another way of saying this, and even probably a more accurate way, is Jesus is saying, repent because the kingdom of God is near. And this is an incredibly important phrase because it is literally, this little phrase is over, used over a hundred times in the Gospels. The arrival of the kingdom is central in Jesus' teaching. Old Testament prophets pointed to it. They prophesied of a kingdom in which the Messiah was coming and he was going to establish his reign. And the New Testament burst forth out of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is near. We don't have time to trace over throughout the Old Testament to see where God's people were longing for this. But whatever it was, wherever it was, people wanted it. They wanted the kingdom of God to come. And what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand is that the moment has finally arrived. What you've been longing for is now beginning. You see, the history of the world is primarily God's story and His activity in it, okay? And it can be laid out in four chapters or four themes. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Alright? First chapter in God's story is creation. And the fact that's that's what we see in Genesis 1. He creates everything we see and know. And He sets His rule on it. I'm king here. I'm the authority here. I know what's best for you. Trust me. I love you. And all of God's creation is in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony with Him. Perfect harmony with one another. 
But then the second chapter of God's story, the fall begins. And God's authority and God's rule is challenged by human pride of Adam and Eve. And this is when they ate the fruit and sin enters the world. And when sin entered the world, it fractured absolutely everything. Everything we now, even up to us right now, everything we see is tainted by sin in some form or fashion. Death, sickness, disease, poverty, homelessness, natural disasters, hunger, murder, hatred, slavery, prejudices, social classes, jobless rates, divorce, broken homes, orphans, all forms of destruction and heartache have their entrance into God's story the moment sin entered the world. But the great news is that his story doesn't end there. Chapter 3 is redemption. And God enters the story here. And he begins to work in the world Choosing people that he would bless the rest of the world through. Ultimately sending a rescuer to get his creation back. And Jesus enters. He is the rescuer. He is the one bringing about this redemption. He is the one. At the moment on the cross, he he dies and then is raised three days later. And he buys God's people back. And from here on out, we're living in chapter 4. Now God's restoring. And this is where Jesus is getting at when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are in chapter 4 of God's story. We are in restoration. And this is where all things in this world will be restored back and better than its original intent. This is a restored and recreated world where there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more disease or poverty, no more homelessness or hunger or natural disasters, no more murder or hatred or slavery or prejudices or social classes or joblessness or divorce or orphans, no more sin, no more. Everything that has been tainted by sin is now in the process of being reversed for all those who are loyal to Jesus. And Jesus is establishing His authority and His reign over our hearts and our lives and we will enjoy Him for the rest of eternity. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, what He's saying is that by my entrance into the world, by my coming death and my resurrection, I'm recreating everything for those who will follow me. The kingdom of heaven is this world that we like so much, this world that feels like home, but it is this world where there's nothing else to degrade us, nothing else to shame us, nothing else to embarrass us, nothing else to ever hurt us again, because Jesus has come and He has died, and He is in the business of restoring, reversing the curse in our life. And He is reestablishing His rule and authority on earth and in our hearts through the lives of His church. And He is reversing the effects of sin in all those who follow Him. You know, as we come to an end this morning, we want to 
continue celebrating. We want to continue worshiping. And we're going to celebrate through song in which we get to celebrate the fact and we get to worship Him that He is building His kingdom here. He is building His kingdom in our lives. He is setting our hearts on fire for Him. And then we're going to celebrate through communion. And communion reminds us of a couple things. Communion, let's let communion remind us this morning of everything that Jesus has accomplished for us. Alright? We come in carrying guilt. We come in carrying our sin. We come in carrying shame. And Jesus says, I have died for that. You don't have to carry that. Let me carry that. Be clean before me, Jesus says. Be open before me and let me carry that. And you will find so much freedom because of His work on the cross for us. Communion reminds us of His unconditional love that in spite of our wicked hearts, our evil hearts, He still had set His affection and His love towards us and showed his, has shown His mercy to us. Communion also reminds that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven and He is recreating and restoring all those who trust and follow Him. He is making us new. And we celebrate that. If you're visiting with us, there uh, you hear it, or we say it all the time, that um, there, we don't close any doors to you, or many doors to you at fellowship. But if you're visiting with us, and you're not a Christian, you have not repented of sin, and you are not, retu- you are not turning to Jesus, we do ask that you abstain from communion. Because by taking communion, you're not going to have a prayer answered that's been unanswered. God's not going to love you more. Nothing magical is going to happen. It's simply just bread and grape juice to you. So we ask that instead of receiving communion, we ask that you receive Jesus. We ask that you are open and honest before Him. And that you lay out your dirty, your, your dirt, your filth, and you receive His mercy this morning. We also celebrate with the opportunity to give. This is an act of worship because God has been so merciful and so kind and one, giving us Jesus, who we don't deserve, and giving us everything we have. And so we come to Him and we offer back to Him financially to support His continuing work within this city and through this church. And if you're a guest with us, We don't want your money. We're not asking anything from you. We want to serve you because Jesus has served us so faithfully. So I'm going to invite you guys to stand with us this morning. And here's how communion works. Band, you can come on too. We're going to sing. We're going to worship together what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of our city, and in the lives of our church. And then after that, we're going to be dismissed with a benediction. And communion will be set up out here. As you walk out, there will be two people holding bread. So we can have two lines forming and one person holding juice. And then there will be someone holding the giving basket. And I invite you to worship with communion. Worship in giving. 
celebrate what God has accomplished for us. Ask Him to search your hearts this morning to find any sin that needs repenting of and be open and honest before God. He wants you to experience freedom this morning. He wants you to experience joy and life. He wants you to know how much He loves you. He wants you to know that He is unbelievably kind to you. So let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for his accomplished work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his perfect life. And thank you that in spite of our sin, in spite of our wickedness, in spite of our evil hearts, you have unconditionally set your love on us. And you desire that we be uh, open before you. You desire that we lay ourselves bare and naked before you. Because you want us to experience the real Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your work. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.